We are at a, uh, the, the last bit of Ephesians chapter 6, and um, it's, it's bittersweet um, because I don't want to quit preaching. <laughs> no, it's great to be able to finally close it out. I know uh, we didn't necessarily plan for Ephesians to go quite as long as it did. Um, this was supposed to be kind of a transition before we moved on to, uh, to Genesis, which we will be starting next week. Eric's going to lead that off. So, um, but we're, we didn't expect for it to take, I don't think, five months, <laughs> but we had some fun things with weather and, and uh, just, quite frankly, there's times you need, to, you need to dig into the passage a little bit more. And, uh, and I love teaching and preaching here because no one ever complains about that. <laughs> now, maybe after two plus years in Genesis, you might start complaining, I don't know. But... Uh, uh, you know, a year and a half in John, I don't think I ever heard anybody say, when are we going to be done? You know, I, I love that. I appreciate, um, I appreciate you guys and your desire to study through the Word of God and to understand what it says um, in its context. And, uh, and that's something that I want to talk about this morning. This is a very familiar passage. Um, if I, in fact, probably many of the kids are very familiar with this passage. This is a fun passage to, to teach when you're uh, teaching children because I remember when I was uh, a young kid, the big thing at the time was flannel graph. You know, how, does anybody remember flannel graph? Okay, some of you my age, roughly, yeah. The kids nowadays are like, what? What is that? Is that, is that, an, is that an app? No, it's not an app. Flannel graph was this board usually, you know, and it had felt, I think it's felt, right? And they would have characters and items and things like that also made out of felt. And you would take them and you would put them on there. And it was, if you had like one of those really expensive kits like my dad had, you'd have like characters that had like three different positions, you know. So you, as, you were, as you were talking, you could like take it down and put somebody else up and he's in a different position, and, you know. So, you know, lots of fun stuff you could do with that. But one of the cool ones was the armor of God, right? Because you had all the little pieces of the armor you could put on the the belt and the breastplate and the sword and the shield. And, and uh, like I said, my dad had a really nice one. He had, I mean, this really, it was a really gorgeous uh, Roman soldier with all the different pieces, and it was, it was lots of fun. But this is, a, this is a very familiar passage. This is something, you know, we're all pretty familiar with. If you've been, if you've been uh, in the church for any length of time, if you've heard uh, sermons, there's a good chance you've heard a sermon on uh, the armor of God. And so, I want to encourage you this morning, uh, don't, don't doze off, all right? Don't just, uh, I, I know most of you won't anyway, but uh, don't just say, yeah, I've heard this before. I get it. I, I, I get the point. It's, it's okay. I, I, know what he's talking, I know what he's going to say, right? Because I just came up with some stuff off the, off the cuff to, no, I'm just kidding. Um, I, I, want, I want to take a look at the armor of God this morning, but we're going we're gonna to get there a little bit. But I want to look at it maybe a little bit differently than you might have looked at it in the past. And, and the reason for that is because I feel like a lot of times when people teach and preach on the armor of God, they sometimes forget the context of that passage. And they begin, you know, focusing in on all the different pieces of the armor and their significance. And, and they start maybe speculating on, well, why did... Why did Paul use the belt for truth? And why did Paul use the breastplate for righteousness and the helmet for salvation? And is it wrong to think about that? No, but it's just speculation because Paul doesn't tell us. 
you know? And so I want to take a look at the armor of God in the context of this whole passage that he's talking about, because I think for many of us, it might give us a little bit insight into what Paul's driving at here that you might not have heard of before, all right? So keep me accountable and make sure I'm teaching the right thing, okay? But let's go ahead and dig in. Uh, Ephesians chapter 6, we're probably going to jump around a little bit this morning um, because we're going to reference some other things in the book of Ephesians. Um, because again, Paul is writing one big letter, right? He didn't write chapters and verses. He wrote one big letter. It was all one uh, a letter to the Ephesians, to the church at Ephesus, and the whole thing was, was relevant, and, and a lot of it was very uh, integrated with, each, with different parts with each other. And so we're going to jump around a little bit, so get prepared for that. But we're going to see here, starting in verse 10, probably all of you have a little statement, the whole armor of God, right above there. We're going to start off with, uh, with verse 10, and we'll just read all the way through the... Uh, We'll just read through verse 20 for now, um, and then we'll jump into our outline here. starts with, finally, because now he's at, near the end of his letter, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me, in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. The title of my message this morning is Three Requirements for successful spiritual warfare. Three requirements for successful spiritual warfare. And believe it or not, I did not alliterate these. I know, it's sacrilege to me almost to not alliterate, but we did not alliterate these this morning. All right, in fact, they're kind of a little weird because they're just one word each. Um, but those one word, those single words have uh, uh, a lot built into them, as you'll see. I'll go ahead and give them to you here. The, the three keys or requirements for successful spiritual warfare is that we must understand, we must prepare, and we must engage. We must understand, we must prepare, and we must engage. And again, those three words don't mean a whole lot without digging into the scriptures this morning. But let's take a look at what we mean by that. We must understand. That first verse there in, in verse 10, Paul says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. The first thing that I think Paul wants us to understand, or maybe remember, is, the, is who we are fighting for. Who we are fighting for. It's easy for us, especially, excuse me, especially here in America, to 
believe that we're at war. Um, we, we are constantly being bombarded by the world and, and their desire for us to be accepting of things that they want to, the ways that they want to live, things that, that we know are sinful, um, things that, uh, that we know God does not want us to live like, and, and, and we get told that we're wrong and that we're, um, we're hateful and that we are uh, just terrible people because we don't want to accept that as acceptable. And there's many topics that we could talk about, but it's easy, I think, for us sometimes to feel like the battle or the war that we're fighting is for ourselves. Have you ever felt that way? When someone is attacking you, whether it's for, for something that you believe um, or just, just for simply you know, saying I'm a Christian you know, or something like that, when someone is attacking what we stand on, the Word of God, a lot of times we can take that personally. And I think we need to be careful in this area of warfare to understand who we're fighting for. We're not fighting for us. We're not fighting for, uh, for our religious freedom. We're not fighting for our religious rights. That's not what we're fighting for. We're fighting for one person. Who is that? Jesus Christ, right? We're fighting for God. We're standing firm for God. It's for Him. It's for His Word that we are to stand firm. And, and Paul starts off this, this uh, passage by saying, Finally, be strong in the Lord. Remember, this is for the Lord. He's just spent the entire book of Ephesians telling us all the wonderful things that God has done for us, telling us all the amazing things that He has done for us. And, and because of that, the responses that we should have, right? Let's go back through it real quickly. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1. God is revealing to us that before creation, He had a plan a plan to redeem us, a plan to call us out, a plan to adopt us as sons and daughters, right? In chapter two, he goes and reminds us that, hey, before that, what was our condition? We were dead in our trespasses and sin, right? We had no power. We had no way of, of, of helping ourselves. We had no way of saving ourselves until we hit that, that, that awesome verse, but God, Right? And it's because of Him, He took us from, from dead to life. He took us from enemies to sons and daughters and made us heirs with Christ. Chapter 3, he talks about the mystery of the gospel and how it doesn't make sense to the world. It doesn't make sense how God could do what he's done for us who don't deserve it. It's a mystery, but it's, it's one that, that we who have the Holy Spirit can understand because we've experienced it. We're able to enjoy it. Chapter four, he begins to talk about the body of Christ, the church, and the fact that the church is now to be the representation of Christ to the world. It's amazing because the church is not just made up of Jews, but made up of Gentiles and Jews. It talks about in chapter 5 how all of us are equal. It doesn't matter if we're upper crust or lower crust. It doesn't matter if we're 
uh, of different races. It doesn't matter if we're male or female, young or old. We are all equal in the sight of God. But yet in that equality, he talks about the beauty of us being able to function within the roles that we are given. Specifically the role of the husband and wife and the picture of that, that that is of Christ in the church. This is his design. This is his idea. He's built this together. He's, he's drawn up these plans to proclaim his glory. And he allows us to be a part of it. And then chapter 6, it continues that with children and parents, with servants and masters. And all these things that God has done, and all, all these this wonderful relationships that he's given us within the body of Christ, within our family units, all of that is for his glory. And it's all because of him. And he says, Paul says, finally, be strong in the Lord. Don't forget who you're fighting for. Because you know, it's so easy. It's so easy for us to become selfish, is it not? It's so, for, it's so easy for us even to call out to God and be like, God, why am I having to go through this? Why am I struggling with this? Why do I have to deal with this persecution? That's because we're thinking about us. It's because we're thinking about the fact that we're going through it. We're being attacked. We're the ones who are, who are under the, the persecution. And yet Paul's reminding us, look, we are fighting not for ourselves. We're fighting for God. But not only do we need to understand who we're fighting for, we need to understand where our power comes from. Where our power comes from. Have you ever tried to fight the Christian life alone? Have you ever tried to just do right by yourself? I have. So many times, even, even when I'm reading the Word of God, where I hear a sermon and I'm convicted about the way that I should be living, something that I should stop doing or something that I need to begin doing, and, and oftentimes, what is, what is that first thought? Man, I just, I got to do better, right? I, man, I, I got to just, I, just I, need to, I need to work on that, right? Now, are those horrible things to say? No, they're true. <laughs> we need to do better and we need to work on it, right? There, there is responsibility on our end. But if we do not understand that our power to do so is not in us, we will fail. If we are relying on our own ability to continually change and grow, we will fail. Because spiritual change doesn't happen through physical change. It doesn't happen through mental acuity. It doesn't happen through creating a better schedule. Those are tools, but spiritual maturity happens through the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And if we're going to fight these battles, these spiritual warfare, it's not going to come down to how well we can argue in a public arena. It's not going to come down to how many times we can get the legislator to vote down or vote up a particular piece of legislation. It's not going to come down to uh, anything else that we can do physically to fight this spiritual battle because it's a spiritual battle. In fact, the battle that we fight is not just with 
the world, it's with ourselves, is it not? What are the three things that Scripture says that we, we fight with? The world, the flesh, and the devil, right? It's not just those other people out there who are persecuting us. It's not just those other people out there who are pushing lifestyles that we don't agree with. We fight and struggle with ourselves, our own personal flesh. And quite frankly, how many of us are winning that battle on our own? We can't. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. We've got to understand who we're fighting for. We've got to understand where our power comes from. But not only that, we must understand who our enemy is. Who our enemy is. Look at the next verse. Verse 11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of whom? The devil. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Who is our enemy? Satan. Satan is our enemy. But so often we forget that. Not only do we feel persecuted personally, we take things personally when it comes to uh, spiritual warfare, but sometimes we dish it out personally too, don't we? It's easy for us to attack people because we see them, we hear them. You know, they're on Facebook. Satan's not on Facebook, you know? It's easy for us to, to go after what we see physically and forget the fact that Satan is the one behind the scenes pulling the strings. And Paul kind of, kind of doubles down a little bit in the next verse here. He says, for we, rest, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. He says, look, we need to understand who the enemy is. It's Satan. We're not wrestling. We're not fighting we're not at war with flesh and blood. But of course, they are the ones that we see. They are the tools that he's using. He says, but instead we are fighting. We're not fighting against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. I want to look back at Ephesians chapter 2 very quickly. Ephesians chapter 2, I think, sheds a little bit light on this statement that he's making here. It says, And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. What does it say there? It says, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. The people that we so easily want to fight back against, the people that we so uh, easily want to attack, the people that we look at as, as the, the problem, they're just doing what we would be doing. Do you remember 
who you were before Christ. I don't think there's any doubt why Paul reminded them of this. And, and now he's telling them, look, don't forget, those people are just like you. If you had not come to Christ, you would be just like them. You would be following after your father, Satan. You would be doing the things that, that he wants you to do. Understand who the enemy is. It is not the politician. It is not that grumpy neighbor. It is not that person that wants you to uh, accept a way of life that it goes against Scripture. It's not that person who laughs at you and puts you down because you want to serve Christ. They are not our enemy. They are people who need what we have. And right now, they are simply the tools of our true enemy, Satan. So if we're going to win, if we're going to be successful when it comes to this spiritual warfare, we have to understand who we're fighting for. We're fighting for Christ. We're fighting for His truth. We have to understand how the power that we have to fight. It's Christ's power. We talked about, or, or uh, Eric talked about it earlier. Christ is, or maybe it was in his prayer, I forget. Christ has overcome sin and death and hell. He's already won the battle. He has the power. The same power, we sing the song that rose Jesus from the grave lives in us. We have the ability to fight spiritually. But do we? Or do we forget who the enemy is and fight a physical battle? We have to understand. But not only do we need to understand those three things, we need to prepare. We need to prepare. And everybody's like, yes, we're finally at the armor, right? Finally at the armor. Not quite. I want to jump someplace else first. In order to prepare for battle, you need to know what to prepare for, right? Um, if you are coaching, we've got a couple of basketball coaches here. You know, if you're coaching basketball, it's helpful to know what the other team's good at, right? Now, you guys coach like girls, little girls, so nobody's good at anything, right? No, I'm just kidding. Um, it's helpful to know what the other team's good at because then you can prepare a defense. You can prepare an attack. You can prepare knowing what's going to happen. And when you think about the Roman soldiers, I, I imagine Paul sitting there in that house as he's in house arrest and, he's, and writing this letter to the, to the Ephesians. I imagine him during this process even maybe glancing over at a guard who's standing there and he's got his, his full armor on perhaps. And, uh, and Paul is looking at that and he, and he tells us that we need to be prepared. We need to put on the whole armor of God. But in order to do that, we need to understand what's coming. The Romans understood hand-to-hand -hand combat. If you've ever done any studying into history and, and war, and especially the Romans, they were, they were really good at war. They were really good at war. They had it figured out. You could almost say down to a science. All right? When they put their armor together, they had a purpose for everything. In fact, <coughs> excuse me, something I read was that the back of the breastplate was open, or at least just had straps, because they didn't want people turning around and running. If you turned around, you weren't protected anymore. 
You know, so they, they, had a pur- they thought this thing through, all right? They had a purpose. They had a plan because they knew how people were going to attack. They knew what hand-to-hand combat looked like. They, uh, they had shields that would protect them from head to toe. Now, they had other shields too, but that was, that's kind of the big one, right? They had armor that would protect the vital organs, the helmet, the, the breastplate. They had shin guards with their sandals. They had the belt that held everything together. And, and they had this plan. They knew what war was like. They knew how the enemy would attack, and they prepared for it. They prepared their soldiers to be successful. And if we are going to be prepared, if we are going to take up the whole armor of God, I think it behooves us to understand why. What is the attack that we are defending against? What is the attack that we're defending against? We say, well, we're fighting Satan. That sounds great. What does that mean? What does that mean? How does Satan attack? If you remember back in the book of John, uh, Jesus had something to say about Satan in chapter 8. <coughs> Excuse me. Turn there real quickly. John chapter 8. Verse 44, he says, talking to the crowd, but he says, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desire. And he talks about Satan here. He says, he was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. Who is this enemy? He's a liar. He's a liar. He is the father of lies. And that is how he attacks. Yeah, he may attack physically in other ways through other people, but it's all built on lies. Satan is the father of lies, and that is how he attacks. And he's been doing it since the beginning of time. Thank you. Anybody remember Genesis chapter 3? We'll get there in about four months. I'm just kidding. Um, Genesis chapter 3. What happened in Genesis chapter 3? What? The fall, right? We're not talking about, you know, spring, winter, autumn, fall. You know, I think I added two and they're the same. We're not talking about that. We're talking about the fall of man, right? We're talking about sin coming into the world. And how did that happen? Well, let's take a look at it. Genesis chapter 3. says, now the serpent was more crafty. I love that word. The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat? of any tree of the garden. What's he doing there? What's he saying? What? Right. He's twisting what God said, right? He, he's, using, he's using some slight variation on what God had said to make Eve think. 
And he says, did God really say you can't eat of any of the trees of the garden? Did he know better? Absolutely. He knew what God had said. And he knew that Eve knew what God had said. But he begins to plant the seed of a lie in her mind. Now, we look at this and Eve, you know, she does a pretty good job. She corrects him, right? She says, and the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. All right, so plus one for the woman, right? She, got, she corrected him. But he's already started the seeds of deceit. And what does he say next? But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What's he doing again? He's twisting the truth, right? He's twisting the truth. He says, no, you're not going to die. You're not going to drop dead. In fact, if you eat that fruit, you know what? God's just afraid. God is afraid that if you eat that truth, fruit, you're going to know right and wrong. You're going to know what he knows. You're going to be like him. And he's taking these things that are somewhat true. Is it true that they began to understand right and wrong when they ate of the fruit? Yes. Is it true that they didn't fall dead right away? Yes. But he's twisting it and he's turning it and he's lying to her. And those lies led her to eat, led Adam to eat, even though Adam made a choice. And because of that, all the human race till the end of time is born in sin. All with a lie. And he's been doing that ever since the beginning of time. Jesus said he's a liar and the father of lies. And that is how he attacks us. He lies to the world. He tells them, hey, if it feels good, it's right. Right? He tells them, love, love is, is everybody coming together. It's, it's not, forget that 1 Corinthians 13 thing, you know, love rejoices in truth. You know, that's, that's, that's old, that's, you know, worthless. Love, if, if you really love somebody, you're just going to accept whatever, whatever happens, right? Whatever they are, whatever they think they are. You're okay with it, because that's, that's love. It's a lie. And he's lying to the world, but you know what? He lies to us, too. He lies to us, too. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that, because it's one of the A&I questions, but he lies to us. In fact, he lies to the church. He lies to the church. Flip over to Ephesians chapter 4. You say, well, as individuals, you know, we, we, we're kind of easily deceived too. We've got, uh, we've got the flesh still. But, you know, I mean, the church, we're built on, we're built on the Word of God. I mean, how, how is that going to, how can, he, how can he affect us as a church? Ephesians chapter 4, um, verse number... Thirteen, talking about the leadership that's given to the church um, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, building up the body of Christ. 
uh, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, for what purpose? To mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Why? So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Satan attacks the church the exact same way. What is, what is this thing that he's talking about through uh, every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes? What's he talking about? He's talking about just a little twist in doctrine. Just a little change in, in what we know Scripture says. But maybe let's look at it a little bit differently. Oh, it doesn't quite mean that. That's an old way of looking at it. And he begins to bring in these lies. They sound good. They're like the truth, but they're not the truth. And if we are going to prepare for battle, we have to know what we're fighting against. We are fighting against an enemy who fights with lies. But he's really good at fighting with lies. He's really good at twisting the Word of God. He's been doing it since the Garden of Eden. He's had a lot of time to practice for you and me. So we've got to be prepared to fight this battle. It's interesting, jumping back to Ephesians chapter 6, in verse 13, Paul says, Therefore take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. I think it's interesting, twice now he said, take up the whole armor of God. All of it. He, these are not just uh, suggestions, right? Well, you know, pick and choose. Pick and choose your favorite pieces of armor, and you'll probably be okay, right? No, this is, you need the whole armor of God. For that Roman soldier going to battle, if he forgot his helmet, he was vulnerable, Right? If he forgot his breastplate, he was vulnerable. If he forgot his sword, he was really vulnerable. <laughs> he didn't have, I mean, he's, he's a goner. Um, but if you forget a part of your armor, you're going to be vulnerable. And Paul's telling us twice now, take up the whole armor of God. Every piece that he's going to talk about, all these things are necessary for us to be prepared to win the battle. The battle for truth. Satan is the father of lies and he's going to fling those lies in many different ways. And if we are not prepared the way that Paul tells us to prepare, we're vulnerable and we'll fail and we'll fall and we'll be injured. So let's look at that. What is this armor? Verse 14, Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. The belt of truth. I think this is important that he starts with this. This is just a general concept of truth, right? He says, start by putting on truth. If we are going to defend, if we're going to be prepared to fight Satan, we must know truth. You know, it's just like a, in the old days, I don't know if they do this anymore. They've got so much fancy technology. But 
Now, in the old days, a banker, a, a teller, or, or somebody at the bank would, would go in and be forced to study currency, the real stuff, what it looks like. Because if you know what the real stuff looks like, what are you going to catch? The counterfeits, right? You're going to catch the, the one people who are trying to lie about it, right? If you know what the, what the real money looks like, you can tell when you see the fake money. It's the same thing with the Word of God. If you know truth, you can recognize a lie. If you know what God has said, you can recognize when it's not really what God has said. The question is, do we know truth? Do we know truth? And we'll get to what that truth is here in a little bit. But are we taking the time to understand truth? You say, what, is, what are you talking about by truth? Doctrine. What the Bible teaches. You know, a lot of times we don't like that word. <laughs> oh man, you're telling me I gotta, I gotta study doctrine? Do I have to take like a college course or something like that? Is, is, there, is there an app <laughs> I can just learn doctrine? No, it's the Word of God. We must know the Word of God. We must know truth. If if we don't know truth, then the other things kind of go by the wayside that he's talking about here because it's all built on truth. We have to understand and know truth in order to recognize when the enemy is coming, in order to recognize when that fiery dart is coming because otherwise we may not even see it. We may not even understand that it's a scheme of Satan if we don't know the truth. And Paul begins, he says, put on the belt of truth. It's important. It's not just important, it's foundational to being able to fight Satan. So, put on the belt of truth. What's the next thing he says? And having put on the breastplate of righteousness. What is righteousness? Anybody? I know, we all use it in our daily vocabulary. <clears throat> what is righteousness? What does it mean? Entitled? Um, not so much entitled. Any other thoughts? I thought I saw a hand. No? Okay, yes. That's more holy. Set apart as holy. Righteous. Righteous means living according to what is right. Right? Living according to what is right. So when Paul says, in order for us to fight a spiritual battle, the first thing that we need to do is we need to know truth. But the second thing we need to do is we need to obey it. We need to live it out. If we're going to be spiritual uh, warriors, we've got to know, not only know what is right, we've got to obey it. What does James tell us? He tells us, don't be just hearers of the word, right? We're supposed to be what? Doers of the word. How can we expect to even be ambassadors for Christ if we're not living out what we say we believe? That's what righteousness is. It's living out truth. It's living out what God has called us to do. And if we are not doing that, 
we've already lost the war. Well, the war's been won. We've lost the battle. And we've become ineffective as soldiers. He says, put on the belt of truth. You have to know truth. Put on the breastplate of righteousness. You have to not only know the truth, you have to obey it. You have to follow it, right? What's the next one? Verse 15, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. What in the world does that mean? The readiness given by the gospel of peace. And there's, uh, I, I think I memorized this years ago in the King James Version, which is another interesting phrase. Um, what in the world is this talking about? Um, there are actually several different ideas as to what Paul's talking about here. Um, he's talking potentially about sharing the gospel, being prepared to share the gospel. Um, I think that's a fair analogy, fair, fair understanding of this scripture. But I think if you go back and look at the context again, all right, what, are, what is the context here? The context here is spiritual warfare. It's a battle. It's a fight. And who are we fighting? We're fighting Satan. And how does he fight? He fights with lies, right? So what is this preparation uh, given to us by the gospel? I think sharing the gospel is part of it. But I also think defending the gospel is part of it. Being prepared to understand what the gospel is and what the gospel is not. There are many versions of the gospel today. There are many people teaching um, many ways to God. And a lot of them, just like Satan, take a little bit of the truth and twist it, right? Maybe it's, they take, you have to believe in Jesus, but you also have to do this, 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 and this. Because, you know, if you don't do those things, you can't be saved. And they're twisting the word of God. They're taking the gospel, the very foundation of what we believe, and twisting it and making it a lie. And Paul says, not only do you need to know truth, not only need to be living it, but you need to be ready to defend the gospel. And you need to be ready to share the gospel. There's a, another passage that I wrote down. Let's see if I can find it real fast. I tend to walk away from my notes. <laughs> uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, don't turn there, I'll just quote it real fast. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 13 through 17. I feel like Paul's kind of echoing this, this thought here. He says, Peter says, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason of the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. I think Paul's kind of echoing the sentiment of Peter here. And he says, look, you've got to not only know the truth and be obeying the truth, but you've got to be ready to defend and share the gospel of Christ. And I ask you this morning, are you ready? 
Are you ready to defend the gospel that you claim you believe? Are you ready at a moment's notice to stand up for Christ and to share the gospel with someone? Or are we just a bunch of cowards? Or are we just a bunch of people who don't really know what we believe? The gospel is foundational to everything we believe in Scripture. And we must be ready to defend and declare it. Let's move on. Verse 16. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. I, I love how it says that that shield of faith extinguishes the darts. Takes all their power away from them. It just, it's almost just like, boom, gone. You know, that's what the shield of faith does. What is this faith in? Is faith in what we think? Is faith in what someone tells us? Because I'll be honest with you, there are a lot of Christians walking around today who have faith in something that they think is right, but not in Scripture. They have faith in something, maybe it's based on Scripture, and, and, you know, we like to use this word conviction. There's a lot of people walking around turning convictions into doctrines and putting their faith in it. And that's not truth. Is a conviction wrong? No. Paul tells us to be convinced in our own mind about how we should serve Christ in Romans. All right? Convictions are not wrong. But if our faith is in our conviction, then our faith is weak it won't be able to extinguish the fiery darts of the wicked. But if our faith is built on the word of God, if our faith is in the promises of God, if our faith is in the truth of God's word, then it is on a firm foundation and it cannot be shaken. I think of Hebrews chapter 11. What does it say about faith? It says faith, I'm going to probably go back to KJV. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, Right? It is so strong that we can use faith built on the Word of God as evidence to keep us moving forward. That's powerful. And if we have faith like that, then when Satan throws those lies, those fiery darts at us, they're extinguished. Because our faith is not built on man, not built on man's thinking, it's built on the Word of God. Take up the shield of faith, which will quench all the fiery darts. But not only the shield of faith, he says in this end, take up the helmet of salvation. The helmet of salvation, I'm running out of time really fast, so I'll go quickly. <coughs> Excuse me. The helmet of salvation. I don't think Paul's saying, make sure you're saved. Who's he writing to? He's writing to Christians. He's writing to the church. Right? I don't think he's saying, hey, make sure you guys are saved. You're going to need to do that to, to be in spiritual warfare. They're in spiritual warfare. They're already in the battle, all right? But what I think he's reminding them of is what he's been reminding them of through the whole book. How did they get where they were? How did they get where they were? They were dead and their trespasses and sins, but God, but God saved them. It is him 
who we trust. It is him who has the power to fight this war. And every day we should be reminding ourselves of the beauty and the magnitude of our salvation. If you have reached a point in your life that you are no longer enamored by what Jesus Christ has done for you, you need to take a hint from Revelation. Same church, isn't it? If I remember correctly. He says, you've lost your first love. You've done all these great things, but you know I have one thing against you. You've lost your first love. You've forgotten the joy and the beauty and the magnitude of what I have done for you. And if we're going to fight this war, we must continually remind ourselves of what Jesus Christ has done for us through salvation. The helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. We don't fight spiritual warfare with legislation. We don't fight spiritual warfare with picketing. We don't fight spiritual warfare through argumentation. We don't fight spiritual warfare with anything else except the Word of God. I was talking to uh, Dave yesterday. We were just talking about lots of different things, and and one of the things that I, I mentioned is I have come to a point in my life where I don't spend a bunch of time trying to convince people of what is right. Because that's not how we win the war. Only the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the soul and the spirit. That's not all of it. That's not time ahead. But that's what's effective. Not my words, not my uh, great oratory, not my really well thought out um, debate tactics. That's not what's going to win souls. The Word of God is what wins souls. And the Word of God, yes, it uses a sword. We can use that as an offensive weapon. It's also a defensive weapon. It is that which we go back to to check and make sure that these lies that are coming at us are truth or not truth. Because I'll just be honest with you, I don't know all of it. I know a lot of it. There's a lot in there. There's a lot of truth in this book. And we must continually be going back to it every single day, knowing more and more and more. And, and, and when we come upon something and we're not sure, does that sound right? I don't know. We don't accept it. We don't ignore it. We look it up. We study it. We find it. We look in Scripture. We look at the Word of God. It is the weapon that helps us fight. So how do we engage? Well, you just talked about it, David. You talked about the sword. Slaughter him with the sword, right? Beat him over the head with your Bible. Paul didn't say that. How do we engage in this warfare? I think it's very interesting what he says. Verse 18, praying. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. Now, I think because of the way that the grammar looks here, you could even include praying as part of our preparation and defense. In fact, I feel like this part right here is specifically talking about us and ourselves. How much do we pray? How often do we pray? What does it say? Praying at all times. 
with all prayer and supplication, right? We're constantly needing to be in communication with God. If we are going to win the battle of spiritual warfare, if we're going to be successful, we have to be in constant communication with God. Again, it's the whole armor of God. If we forget this part, we are vulnerable. How much time do we spend in prayer? But not only prayer for ourselves, but he continues on here and he says, to that end, the, what's he talking about? The end, he's talking about being able to stand, right? Being prepared. To that end, excuse me. <clears throat> Sorry, I lost my place. Keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for whom? For all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me, and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Very quickly, because we need to be done. Paul says, not only should you be in prayer for yourself, but if we are going to engage, this is how I want you to engage. Prayer. Prayer for yourselves, prayer for one another. When's the last time you prayed for someone in this church to win a spiritual battle? Oh, we pray for, um, <coughs> excuse me, we pray for health concerns. We pray for financial concerns, you know, job concerns, all these other things, all these other physical things. When's the last time you prayed for someone to win a spiritual battle? in this congregation? When's the last time you knew about a spiritual battle that somebody was fighting? Do we even know? Paul says, if we're going to engage, it's not going to be yelling at people on the street. It's not going to be writing our senator, not that that's wrong. It's not going to be forcing people to do things the way that we want. It's going to be prayer. Prayer. Are we praying for spiritual victory? But not just that, what does he say? He says, are you praying? He says, pray for me. Why? So that I will have the words to speak, to share the gospel. Not only are we pray, praying for victory for other people in this church spiritually, are we praying for opportunities for ourselves and others to share the gospel? Do you even know anyone who is in the sphere of influence of somebody in this church, their name, who needs the gospel to even pray for them. That's what Paul's saying. He's saying, pray for me that I will have the opportunities to share the gospel. Now, he reminds them again that he's in chains. He's stuck there. He ends the, the book saying, I'm going to send somebody with this letter, and he's going he's gonna, to he's gonna tell you everything's okay. He's going he's gonna to update you on what's going on with me. But even there, under house arrest, in chains, knowing that the trial was coming, know that the end of his life was coming very soon, Paul is trying to prepare the church at Ephesus for the spiritual warfare that they were fighting and that they would continue to fight takes three things. We have to understand who we're fighting for. 
where our power from, comes from, who our enemy is. We need to prepare, be prepared with the whole armor of God, not parts of it, all of it. And we need to engage on the spiritual battlefield of prayer. Is that what we're doing? Are we living lives of vulnerability? Are we fighting for our own cause? Are we just negligent in prayer? If so, we need to change. Not in our own strength, but we need to stand firm in the strength of Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you that we don't have to do this alone. We are not uh, just saved and, and sent off into the world with, uh, with our own wits. We have the Holy Spirit living within us. We have the power of God living within us to fight our own sinful nature. But Lord, so often we, we fail even at that. We lose so many battles, Lord. I pray that as we've come to the end of this book, that it would not just be a, a completion of a book and moving on to something else, but that we would take these lessons to heart. That we would understand who we're fighting for, who we're fighting against, that we would remember that it's not in us, it's in you. That we would be prepared, that we would not forget one piece of the armor, and that, Lord, that we would engage for one another on the spiritual battlefront of prayer. Lord, what amazing things you would do in this church if we were simply known as a people of prayer. I pray that that would be who we are in the days ahead. And we'll give you the praise and glory for it. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.